you'll also have access to sixth level spells like Hold Monster and Dance Macabre. Those are actually both fifth level spells, but well, you'll get sixth level spells. dangerous warehouse in a sketchy part of new york city i'm your host shane and i'm your host ishan and welcome to episode 137 of total party thrill a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours in this episode we're talking about how to play with a big group at the table but first the rogue traders deface a priceless painting in the dynasty unwarranted campaign and later dance with the devil does the lindy hop with lucifer in the character creation forge so, Shane, um, we got drunk last night. Uh-huh. And uh, we started having some conversations about what other Patreon rewards we could offer to our supporters. Oh, thank God it was only that. Yeah. <laughs> there was other stuff, but I'm not going to talk about it on air. <laughs> I think we'll get arrested. Uh, yeah, we've been, we've been trying to figure out uh, some way to make our Patreon more engaging and more fun and get get more into doing you know the fun content that we want to create instead of the uh dull um bookkeeping and work that we currently have it doing yeah so i think uh there was some talk of statting out politicians in 5e and Uh, then a large argument over what president trump's stats are right specifically does he have 20 charisma or 20 luck or both <laughs> right <laughs> and six charisma or is he an od and d character and he inherited all of his xp because xp is gold and he's just playing at level just... 15 when everyone else is level one of course he can convince these npc commoners right <laughs> they've got negative fours in insight exactly and is he a warlock? Did he make a decision here? Or is he just a sorcerer? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, the bloodline from Sweden. Right. <laughs> <laughs> chaos, chaos sorcerer. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> if only a fireball would go off. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, dear. All uh, right. So if you would like to hear more ridiculous content like that, <laughs> uh, we're exploring some ideas that we uh, might be able to do uh, as bonus episodes as part of Patreon. Yeah, pitch us some ideas. Um, we're open to stuff, uh, especially ridiculous stuff. Uh, your wife suggested that perhaps uh, she and my wife could join an episode in which they would ask us castigating questions about our hobby and make fun of us. Yeah, so I guess that would just be a normal weekend, but on the air. Right. <laughs> Right, <laughs> but with a microphone. You know, we're already we're already there. And then make right? us edit it. That's yeah. the best part. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we have to make sure they sound good. Uh, she also suggested an argument over whether or not the minis that we play with are dolls. I mean, they are. They are <laughs> they're objectively. Not dolls. They're totally dolls. They're not dolls. Look, they're not articulated, but that's just because we're too it's poor to ar- get really good minis. It's not the articulation that makes them not dolls. They're definitely dolls. I most of the game sessions I run are tea parties. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> hello, Mister Beholder. Thank you for coming to my party. What a nice dress you have. How does it stay on? Telekinesis. <laughs> Jesus. 
I wish I had feet for pretty shoes. Do you hear that, Ishan? It's the sound of all of our Patreon supporters running away. If you want more of this, just donate more on Patreon. Just, just donate less. Don't stop. Just do less. All right, Shane. Um, speaking of a total shit show, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game, played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And on the Dead World Malajact, the Rogue Traders and their armsmen have located the ancient fortress of the fallen Dark Angel, Lord Cypher, uh, better known as the Verzer House. And it is a garbage place. <laughs> so yeah, after an arduous march, you uh, assaulted the fortress... Uh, conquered it, claimed it for the Imperium, uh, found it, you know, of course, deserted uh, for centuries. But that wasn't without challenges. Uh, you find that it is uh, appointed inside, much like a house or a manor, uh, has been deserted for years, is lit by these dim, pulsating chem lamps that are sort of uh, dying their last breath. And your armsmen are very on edge, jumping at shadows, and frankly, you rogue traderly types aren't much better. Which is disconcerting because our men are uh, dollar store refugees, essentially, who we picked up on random feral worlds and then barely trained with the help of a Dark Eldar. Yeah, pressed into service. Actually, these companies are your most battle-hardened veterans. I mean, it is your scouts and your honor guard. So, you know, they were once dime store refugees. <laughs> They're now kind of dollar store soldiers they have like 1100 xp okay like maximum <laughs> and like no talents and last guns <laughs> yeah I, I mean they're hot shots now but probably still i don't yeah. uh, these guys but us battle-hardened trained rogue traders ish ish we're scared too and i don't like that because trank don't scare easy mainly because he's usually high right so in the main hall uh seneschal tricks begins staring at a particular tapestry that seems almost familiar to him and he realizes that he's drawn to it because it features a painted portrait of a woman and so he goes to examine it more closely so he wipes away the dust from the subject's face and of course like an idiot tears the frail fabric that her face is painted on with his thumb because it's like thousands of years old right <laughs> And also, you're not supposed to touch paintings, even if they're new. That's not good behavior in a museum, <laughs> as it turns out. So he, he yelps with surprise because the tapestry then begins to bleed, which also is not supposed to happen. Well, yeah, you're not supposed to yelp with surprise. Also, even Leonardo da Vinci's crazy experiments don't typically result in paintings bleeding. Correct. Except the Mona Lisa. So everyone kind of stops what they're doing and turns, and, and he sort of, you know, makes a sheepish look and... and ushers everybody back to work and uh calls over echo your resident nerd to to try and examine this and figure out what's going on and and when he turns back to the painting looks again he realizes that what he saw was blood is just motes of dust sort of trickling down from the tear in the surface sort of being played with by the light so echo comes over and she examines it closely and determines that the portrait is from the post-heresy era but the style fell out of fashion maybe a few millennia ago. So it's somewhere between, you know, just ballparking it, two to 10,000 years old. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that checks out with, uh, you know, one touch puts a hole in it. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but based on the quality of the work, the age of the woman in the painting, her expression, it's very dour, and she's got simple clothing that is also elegant, the prominent location that it's in, uh, she determines that the this old dame is likely the wife or the mother of one of the early lords of the manor. Of course, no one's sure what to do with that information. Yeah, it seems like a nice aside from your nerd for now. But you turn your attention to more pressing matters and uh, realize, you know, daylight outside is fading. And uh, this would be the fifth night that you've spent camped uh, in uh, the middle of a dust storm. So the rogue traders make the executive decision to figure out, start making plans, how to spend the night in the Verzer house. Nobody have sex. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> I don't think Trank has had sex in about nine years. <laughs> Look, if you want to get out alive, you just need to follow the rules. Right, okay. <laughs> and we'll find out how they fare next week. So this week, we're talking about playing games with large parties. So we've talked before about playing games with small parties. That's groups of three PCs or even fewer on episode 93. But this time we're going in the other direction. We're talking about large parties. So that's groups of six to eight people or maybe even more. Because most RPGs are sort of balanced or plan to play with one person running the game. And then between four, five, maximum six players at the table at a time. But it is definitely possible to play with a much bigger group. In fact, the group that we play with on a regular basis actually has seven players. Allegedly. <laughs> yeah, not everyone shows up all the time, which yeah. actually works, works out. out. Yeah. <laughs> but on occasion, we have a full house, and every once in a while, someone also brings someone. So we've had as many as eight players. And a GM, yeah. Yeah. Nine people in the room. So there are actually some benefits to playing what uh, seems like really unwieldy or, or complicated game. For one, you've got every angle covered. You know, superhero teams have a bunch of different members because not everyone can do everything, especially in RPG games, which are, you know, games of resource management and opportunity cost. It's also nice because having extra players means that every individual character has room to specialize. You know, if you want to be the vampire hunter who, you know, is a good fighter, but is really especially good at killing undead and vampires... You can do that because it's not like you also have to be the one who's very good at hunting and killing orcs because someone else can be the one to do that. Yeah, it also opens up slots, if you will, in the uh, cast of characters to play more supporting roles. So um, some of the more oddball, tough-to-fit archetypes like a pacifist or a lore master uh, might not work in a small group because you, you have more bases that need to be covered but can be a useful niche in a larger group. Yeah, or, you know, if there's three or four of us we need everybody to be dealing damage right but if you want to play half the builds in the character creation forge maybe you want to try a larger group in birthright i am playing a solo class knowledge cleric which has no offensive spells <laughs> like i don't do damage and i don't really do healing either <laughs> fortunately we're fighting a lot of undead so we just wait until I, your turn undeads refresh. i turn undead a lot yeah <laughs> that's the bone that jim throws to me <laughs> What do I do now? Wait right. while the rest of us murder them all. I uh, try and run away. I get paralyzed. I hide. I hide. <laughs> Pretty soon you'll be able to teleport. Or wait, do you get that? I don't remember. No. What? <laughs> Why would a cleric teleport? Oh, you can word of recall soon, which sure. only takes us home. 
But honestly, that's important. Home is where the heart is. It, yeah, for now. Home is where my cold, dead, phylacterous heart is. Yes, we are <laughs> learning that you can rip a heart out of a, a body and use it to power a portal. Indeed. Oh, birthright. We'll get to that later, one of these days. Uh, so another benefit of having a large party is that everyone can play. Um, this was, I know, a challenge for us in high school. We had um, a pretty big group of friends who were interested, but we really couldn't play with more than like six people because it just got unruly. Um, so if you if you learn how to play with large parties, you don't have to exclude anybody. It also can make combat a lot easier and give you more leeway for error. Because if you think about it, the PCs end up having more turns because there are so many more of them. That means that there's time for mistakes to be mitigated. If an ally has you know, fallen unconscious, they can be healed by someone else. You can take the time out to you know, spend an entire round uh, healing someone uh, in games where you, know, you can't both heal and attack. Uh, and so it means that while someone else is attacking or someone else is you know, holding the drawbridge open, uh, you can actually get everyone back in the fight. Yeah, it also gives you the chance to spend your time kind of engaging with uh, the alternative combat objectives that we've talked about in uh, very early episodes. Yeah, like episode three? Seven? Yeah, yeah, something yeah, like something that. Um, you know, so things like investigating in the middle of a combat, right, trying to um, figure out how some magical device works or how to defuse a bomb or something like that. You can actually give that attention in the midst of a fight if you have a specialist um, rather than having to wipe the fight and then scramble to finish it at the end. Yeah, I always think of that scene in The Mummy where uh, Brendan Fraser is uh, trying to hold off the mummy and uh, what's his name? The the brother. I forget. He's a great character actor. Is standing there trying to like read the ancient Egyptian. Yeah. <laughs> like him and his sister are like, going back and forth. Well, I mean, the, we have an Ibis hieroglyph. Hold on a second. <laughs> and Brendan Fraser's just like, ah! <laughs> That's funny because uh, the scene that I think of in a movie is from the G.I. Joe movie in 1987. Oh, a movie with dolls. Yeah, the movie about <laughs> dolls. Yeah, that one. Um, where uh, Gung-Ho, Alpine, and Bazooka are trying to defend the uh, prison of Cobra Commander from the attack by Cobra. And they're all Cobra, trying... la, 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 That one, yeah, yeah that's the one. Uh, and they're trying to get the alarm activated so that they can sound, sound the alarm so that they can defend it. Uh, and they all get shot in the process, but I think Gung Ho finally does, like, splice the alarm back together. But he's, like, laying on the ground, and there's, like, you know, lasers flying back and forth over his head, and he's just trying to splice wires. It's great. Terribly wounded, but there's no blood anywhere. Uh, no, that's, uh, that's only in that rewrite that they put at the oh, end. <laughs> I only... Uh, the, the thing I mainly remember about that movie actually is, uh, is Duke in a river with giant snake Cobra Commander wrapped around him. It's like it's terrifying no, image seared into my memory. It's not Duke though. Is that's uh, that's uh, Roadblock. Oh, okay, okay. I just yeah, who always speaks in like rhyming couplets. It's so <laughs> oh, <yes>. good. <laughs> that movie holds up. That movie is great. Uh, yeah. Hang on. That movie is great. No, it, no, yeah. Transformers the movie does not hold up. No, that movie is terrible. But yeah, I mean, it, it is a way better movie than, uh, than it had any... an action figure franchise deserved to be. Yes. <laughs> it had no right to be that good. No. It's, uh, it's a fantastic movie. Okay, we digress. Uh, having a large group also makes it much easier to make sure that you have quorum for every session. Actually, it's part of the reason that we have eight, a large group. eight people in this, in this group. Yeah, because we have... Busy schedules. Yeah. Uh, so honestly, I think most weeks we actually have four players. That's our quorum. Um, every once in a while, we even struggle to get four. Yeah. Just because everyone's so busy sometimes. Yeah. Holidays. Ugh. Lame. Family. 
but large groups are not without their uh, very obvious challenges. Yes. So if you have to split the pie of the session more ways, that means each piece is smaller. So screen time for any given character will be less. Shane, it's not a zero-sum game. All right, just make the pie bigger. Okay, yeah. Grow the pie. Just play a five-hour session instead of a four-hour session. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, okay. Well, then sessions take longer. (laughs) Which is fine because then you just start using 28-hour days. Oh, man. That's actually a really good idea. Play on a different planet. Why have I not moved to 28-hour days? (laughs) Idiot. Just wasting four hours. Lame. You could have time to edit. I'd have more time to sleep. (laughs) And, of course, with more personalities in the game, you've got more things to balance in terms of planning the storyline and running the game at the table. Sandbox games, you know, open-world games where everyone just sort of decides what they're going to do that session are really, really... Uh, hard to get everyone to agree to find consensus especially if your group is uh, prone to coming up with zany and off the wall solutions to problems you can find that just you know making even simple progress on on simple questions becomes very difficult as everyone is sort of uh, competing to figure out the most absurd way to deal with any challenge Ishin, like digging under a rival nation in order to cross its borders it's gonna work 50 miles of tunnels. It's gonna, it's gonna be so fast. You're I looked Shawshank up Shawshank Redemption us across. Yeah, I looked up the the forced march rules. I have a poster of Rita Hayworth. <laughs> it's gonna be awesome. <laughs> yeah, many chessboards. You know, we actually should, should actually no no. I'm gonna forget this. Sorry, dear listeners. I figured out a way to to hack the digging under another nation, but I will save that for another time. Okay. It just costs money. Don't worry, we got money. <laughs> Great. Uh, but yeah, it's it sort of, you default to lowest common denominator, right? Like if you think about any group of people, uh, someone is going to come up with the dumb murder hobo idea and it, most other people will pile onto it when that happens. But, but if we, you only got four people, maybe it doesn't happen in a game. Right, right. You have eight. Yeah. Someone, someone's going to have one drink too many and go, you know, it'll be a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> Digging under Alamy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, Along those lines, it can be more difficult to tell uh, personally focused stories as well. You end up only kind of dealing with the larger plots because taking the time out of a session to focus on a single character means that many more players become spectators. Yeah, it's really difficult to have, for example, you know, a romance subplot between a character and an NPC or even two characters because, I mean, you kind of need time to, to drag that out to have that. Um, emotional connection really makes sense and mean anything. Mm-hmm. But then everyone else is just like, yeah, okay, that's great. Are we invited to the wedding? Right. <laughs> and if you've got a challenge in combat, it can really become a slog because you've just got so many players at the table plus probably even more enemies with a bunch more HP. Yeah, I mean, that's not just combat. That's just any structured encounter is going to take longer, right? It, it's necessarily going to have to be more complicated because you've got to deal with more inputs on the character side yeah everyone with a charisma bonus wants to talk to the queen yeah <laughs> let's all take turns uh talking uh, trying to persuade her <laughs> all right so when you are playing with a large group you you have two main tasks and this is both the gm and then the players at the table in order to facilitate all of this running smoothly first you want to reduce the workload for the gm because the amount of brain power one person has doesn't increase just because you're dealing with more people and more moving parts. Yep. 
but you also want to keep everyone else at the table invested even when the focus isn't on their character, which of course is more complicated because there's less time when the focus is on their character. So these two things uh, you need to address starting all the way with planning sessions down to the end of a session and even, you know, intercession recaps. Yeah, and that's, I mean, probably even before planning sessions, like planning campaigns even, uh, you have to have to start differently, I think, than you would with a smaller campaign. So when you are doing that planning, whether you're the GM or, or the player, keep in mind that you already know this, but it, it means more or it has, it's more impactful in, in a large group because RPGs aren't just about what's happening in a particular scene or a given round of combat. The PCs and the players are thinking about the consequences of what's happening right now, what's going to happen in the future because of what is occurring right now, and how whatever that has happened in the past is affecting what's happening right now, which means that if you are in a scene where your character is not actively engaged, they can still be engaged emotionally in what's happening, even if they're not the one rolling the dice. Because maybe it's caused by the previous actions that their character took, whether that's due to their backstory, or they made a terrible mistake eight sessions ago, or you know they were part of the roundtable that made a fateful decision that, yes, we're going to carry a ring into Mordor, even though that's a stupid idea. <laughs> there were scenes where they were in the spotlight, and now we are here because that happened. So they are invested in the outcome of this happening here right or the flip side is whatever happens here whatever the outcome of this is will have an impact on my character in the future so i need to know what's going to happen to my character as a result of uh what this die roll is right now yeah even if the sage is standing there making uh, a lore check in order to decipher a scroll and uh, your dumb barbarian can't even read if the point of deciphering the scroll is to lead to your ancestral treasure of course you're still invested so that means that plot seeds presented in a game with many players need multiple hooks. They've got to do a bunch of double or triple duty. They need to work overtime in order to reel in multiple characters all at once. Yeah, and this is where the campaign planning piece comes in, right? Is, is whatever events you're setting your campaign into motion with need to really fall towards the center of the group um, and, and, and capture as many players up in it as possible. And of course, the easiest way to do this is, like Shane said, even before you're beginning, start with a session zero. This allows you to do things like get everyone get everyone around the table and, you know, just double check that the party does have all its bases covered, right? There's a tank and a healer and a face. But you also want to make sure that the characters that people are coming up with aren't too similar, right? That you're not going to be stepping on each other's toes. So, so that's interesting, actually, that you think that because... I think a larger party is one of the rare uh, situations where you can have very similar characters and you can step on each other's toes and there's there's room because there's so many other roles being covered. You know, as long as, as the two players are okay with it, like you could have rival barbarians or, or rival fighters, right? Slightly different styles maybe, but filling the same niche uh, together. Yeah, I think we're saying the, the same thing. Like, Two barbarians is great. It's one of those instances where, yeah, you can have two rogues. It's fine. Where you typically don't want that in a party of four, right? right. But I think you probably want to make sure that you're not both arcane tricksters. Or even if you are both arcane tricksters, that you're not taking the same spells and that you're going to end up playing the same and that you're like vying for um, the the same rare spotlight opportunities every time. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you definitely would at least want 
different backstories, right? And, <laughs> and different motivations and different, like, uh, setting yourself up for different plot hooks. Yeah, unless you are twin brothers. I mean, I actually kind of love the idea. Yeah, yeah. We, The more we describe this, the more I'm like, <laughs> man, I kind of want to play, like, yeah, like the Bash Brothers. <laughs> like, I, like, I'm, I'm cool with this. <laughs> Yes, uh, Zangief in red tights and, and you, Zangief in green tights. And if I play my cards right, I can get Ishin to build my character for me. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> hey, Ishin, what do we gain this level? <laughs> Everything. Uh, but yeah, you still need to to make sure that you have broad coverage in the, the key archetypes of your game, right? So whether that's classes or skills or roles in combat, um, you know, wh- whatever that is. Uh, make sure you've got, you know, your hacker and you have your pilot and your arcanist and your uh, scout and, and all those types of roles, right? Yeah, this is the time when you can actually, like, be the pilot and not be like, oh, I'm useless all the time. It's kind of fine to be kind of useless sometimes because, yeah. like, when you get to the piloting episode, you're you're going to kill it and you'll still be competent the rest of the time. You're pulling the story along even if you're not necessarily, like, a combat monster. Right. The flip side is there's also room for generalists in a larger party where you might have specific roles you have to fill in a in a small party you might not have to fill any role right the jack of all trades might have a place if you've got seven other characters that are specialized it, it's always good to have the uh uh what was the skill monkey right being able to help grant advantage to any skill check yeah exactly <laughs> like i i have uh, proficiency in every single skill, so I aid another every single time anybody does anything. Yeah, I have I have my fingers in every single pie. Right, the kibitzer. Right, yeah. <laughs> Did you mean a little to the left? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know how to make a pie. Hmm, not from here. It doesn't look that way. <laughs> so once you've decided mechanically, you know, what everyone's role is going to be, you want to encourage the PCs to depend on each other, both mechanically and in the story. So this, again, is an opportunity to specialize. Your enchanter can just be an enchanter. Like, that's all, because they don't have to do anything else that a wizard usually does, because there's probably someone else who has those spells. Right. Your um, your bard or cleric might not need healing spells, because you have a healer archetype covered in your party. You might be able to um, take the rare opportunity to focus on offensive spells or control spells rather than support. Yeah, and then you, in terms of backstories, you want to ensure the PCs have ties to one another. Um, if you have four players, it's kind of fine if you kind of have a lone wolf who's off to the side and you know is sort of constantly deciding, mm, am I going to continue with the party? Yeah, they they can be tied together through goals, not through history. Right, but when yeah, when you have seven or eight players. Um, you really need to keep everyone on a, a tighter leash to just keep everyone moving in the same direction all the time. You don't have time to like convince each person every session that like, yeah, you're supposed to be a part of the story. Right. Um, so, you know, it keeps the group cohesive. Uh, you can get personal. We already talked about family members. Uh, maybe two or even three PCs went to school together. Um, encourage people to create backstories together. D&D has that bond system, which is okay. Mm-hmm. And it's going to make your life a lot easier as a GM when you are trying to plant effective plot hooks because you put one down and four people jump on it. Right. Uh, I think with a large group, it's also important to go ahead and just ask your players for input uh, when you're planning your sessions. So 
understand kind of what players want to see in the game because man it is easy to overlook somebody and and for them to feel like they don't really have a piece of the campaign that's theirs because you know there's six other people and you just happen to not hear their voice in the crowd Mm -hmm. or you know this way you don't bend over backwards to get someone else involved in the storyline when it turns out like they're super happy just being on on autopilot this campaign right and then between sessions i think it's also a good idea to offload some of the bookkeeping responsibilities that gms usually inherit so things like scheduling sessions can be difficult um you know managing managing so many calendars so if you can have somebody else kind of in charge of scheduling that can take a big load off your plate uh likewise if you've got um like campaign resources that are shared by the party so um like a a wiki or um even just like magic item lists or uh inventory or gear lists stuff like that um that can be helpful if you just have a player who's going to be the quartermaster yeah any of that admin work which brings us to uh, facilitating a large group uh, actually at the table and so just let's continue this idea of of delegating you know if you are the gm or if you are a player at a table with a bunch of people make sure that not all of the burden is falling on one person um players can take double duty right so someone should be tracking the initiative not the gm someone should be taking notes or uh, making note of the important piece and of the important npcs and their names Shane mentioned the quartermaster, like someone can handle all the inventory, send out an email later so everyone knows what the loot was. And yeah, they can figure out dividing it up themselves. You don't need to kind of have a hand in assigning that. Right. Everyone gets like 67 gold pieces and four silver. Right. I did the math because I love math. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If a map needs to be made, then, you know, one person should be drawing the map have someone designated who like either knows the rules because they're an encyclopedia or they have the book in front of them and they can look up the rules if there's a question. Yeah, I, I like that one a lot. It's it's easy to keep the game flowing quickly. If you know the person who just took their turn, you say, hey, we have a rules question. Can you just look up that section of the book um, and hand it to me when you get there? <laughs> like, so I'm not flipping through a book the whole time. Right. Or, you know, okay, I'm the GM. I will, I'll make a ruling, but, in the, you know, can you look up what the actual rule is and the next time it comes up we'll know and then we can do that right Um, one of the easiest things that you can do as a player to help with this is just handling like ordering food for everybody right if you if if a player just collects everybody's like input and then handles it like it's one less thing the gm has to do Um, likewise like we play in apartments in new york so a lot of times we have to um, buzz people into the building or um, answer from the doorman or whatever so if someone can just who's close to the buzzer can just get up and do it whenever it buzzes. Like that helps with the delivery guys and everybody else. Yeah. If you think about it, this stuff's going to happen anyway, but rather than having four people doing it and then people aren't paying attention at the time and the story's going on, but people are missing things, just like have one person focus on it. It gets, it gets it done quickly. Yep. And you know, if everyone has a job like this, that's part of running the encounter or the, the game or the combat, then everyone stays focused on it. Everyone is paying attention even when it's not their turn. And then, you know, afterwards, have someone else do the recaps. If you want. I think we talked about in episode 101 
about you know GMs can use those um, to facilitate the storyline. But if it's just a quick down and dirty recap, I actually really like it when another player does that. Yeah, like to start the session, mm-hmm. have the recap come from a player, even if you provided uh, a more complete recap in between mm-hmm. sessions. I also love when uh, after the fact, someone sends like an in-character recap of like, okay, so here's what happened for like the people who weren't there. Right. They're like, so no shit, there we were. <laughs> <laughs> Um, for very large groups, a lot of times you'll hear about a co-GM or a sub-GM, a GM's helper kind of thing. That that would be someone that the GM trusts to be involved in the planning and um, offer rulings and advice and sort of help facilitate at the table. Yeah, and this doesn't necessarily mean someone who is making decisions about what's happening in the fiction at in the moment, right? Um, it's not two multiple stories that are running at the same time, but lots of times there are questions about, you know, the rules or often, you know, people are looking through books, trying to decide what they're going to take next level. And so at our table, Shane and I have kind of become like the de facto character builders. And someone will just be like, Hey guys, like what's the, what spell should I take right now? Or, Hey, how does this spell work? I'm thinking about using it in this situation, in this combat does that make sense? And they don't need to deal with the GM right then because the GM is talking to like the active character. Right. Uh, likewise, we end up being sort of the second GMs, especially for D&D, just around rules questions, right? So the GM might not have total system mastery. Uh, who does? Um, but it's like, hey, real quick, guys, what is that rule again? How does falling work? And it's like, uh, but something like 1d6 damage per 10 feet but i'll look it up and just go with it and i'll i'll correct it in a minute yeah that sounds about right um and it shifts depending on what game we're playing right because we're, we're if we're playing blaze in the dark then probably cameron or jim is running it because they're the ones who have the book and have read it thoroughly but then the other one will can chime in and be like oh yeah here's how actually that rule works yeah exactly you can on occasion split up a really big group so if you have eight players you could have uh, two groups of four or a group of four, a group of three, and then one of those players sort of becomes a temporary GM. I would only do this for really large groups, like eight or more, and it's not typically recommended because if you're going to do this constantly, it's usually just easier to just form two play groups two and play groups, two different yeah. stories. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's there's always a social dynamic at, at work when you try and split groups too. Like usually the reason a large group forms is because you know, eight people want to play together. Um, but that you could find temporary situations where that would make sense and be a little easier to manage. I think maybe there's a situation where uh, you sort of team up. Like, I have never played the Robotech RBG, which I know is having problems oh, right now. Oh, don't worry, see... you, you never will. Because <laughs> <laughs> that That's Kickstarter not... lit a one and a half million dollars on fire. Yeah, yeah, it's disappointing. But I could see, you know, in a like a, a Gundam game, right? One person is playing the mech and one person is playing the pilot mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is which is kind of cool or maybe a game where everyone's a wizard and every other people are familiar or uh or like a power rangers type game where you form a kaiju and you each have to control a separate system of the kaiju right i'm a leg yeah exactly i walk wait wait <laughs> i wait for him to take a step and then i take what? a step oh we really need I, can we rearrange initiative <laughs> nope <laughs> So one step, one punch. <laughs> so it's left leg, left arm, right, right arm, right leg. Oh, this is complicated. Uh, uh, we look dumb. 
Okay, but splitting the party can work temporarily. This is useful if, for example, one person is taken out of the action. Like, if they end up in jail. Or maybe they're the bound sacrifice in the ritual that brings back a horrible overlord. <laughs> uh, because, you know, it's, it's tougher to corral all of your players to stop them from doing a dumb thing. Um, you know, in a smaller group, you, you do a bit of metagaming as a GM where you're like, well, I don't want them to go off on their own and like just not be around here because that's boring. So like, let me figure out how to like get them out of this. But with a large group, you can you can let someone disappear. And guess what? Hey, maybe they are co-GMing the bad guy in the ritual, right? You just sort of give them a character sheet um, for one of the enemies and say, yep, you do this. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, that's your body in front of you that you're about to stab. Uh, so <laughs> roll poorly. And it also works really well if you've got someone who's just recuperating in the hospital for weeks at a time. Yeah. You know, if you don't want to ruin the fiction by saying that they magically get better, then great. Have them run something for a little while. So another important thing to do with large groups is to codify what's going to happen when a player misses a session. Uh, we talked about this in episode 82. Um, but it's it's more likely that you could be missing players if you have more players, uh, right? More more schedules to manage. Um, you know, typically we recommend they just sort of fade into the background and stick with the party where they were. Uh, but you should make a decision on whether they're skills or spells or contacts or uh, gold stuff like that are available for the party to use because, uh, especially if you've got a very specialized group, um, you might have been wholly dependent on that character for this one task and if that task comes up you either need to plan around it very carefully or um, simply allow them to exist as needed so who had the rosette yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) to the front please (laughs) so one special scenario when you're playing with a bunch of players is combat Um, One of the sort of biggest complaints about certain kinds of RPGs is that combat takes forever. But when you start throwing in other players and then you probably start throwing in other enemies to balance it out, it can take forever. So if you are running a combat with a bunch of people, a couple things to keep in mind. Uh, Firstly, with initiative, if what usually happens is you roll in order, right? Like everybody rolls and then you go in descending order of like how good your initiative was. But that can get really complicated with eight people at the table. You're sort of like jumping around the table in this weird kind of star formation. And then, you know, one person is sort of like, okay, uh, you're you're on deck, you're playing now, and then you're coming, and then you're coming. Mm-hmm. It can get complicated. But so you're going to be tempted to try to figure out a better way to do that. Uh, first off, don't use side initiative because if all eight of your players go first, they'll just win. They'll never have a boss fight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but if they're all getting jumped by going last, then there's an excellent chance that each one of them individually is sort of like a smaller pool of hit points, right? And yep. the enemies, if they are intelligent, should be focusing on one person. So all that really means is like one or two people just go down before they can even do anything. And that sucks. Yep. So what's the solution? Well, systems like Genesis, for example, sort of roll slots, right? Um, and then the party chooses like which of them goes, and then the GM chooses which enemy goes. But that then gets... you have to argue over like yeah. who's the best time to go now. Yeah. Oh no, wait! I have the thing that I can do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think one way that works is you know you roll, um, and then the party 
picks a person to go first and then from there every time there's a player slot you just sort of go clockwise around the table it's very easy for everyone to notice okay like you're going to be next then you're next then you're next and oh look my, my turn is coming up but since the party can decide who is going to go first they also kind of get to decide at what point the abilities are going to come up mm -hmm. yeah that makes it quick so when you're building combats you want to make sure you don't scale combat linearly in most games, um, that's just going to end up with twice as many moving parts and all of the complexity that goes with it. Instead, you can use groups of enemies, but just treat them as one creature. I mean, maybe that's the swarm rules, or maybe you're you know, just sort of using a, a creature stat block and reskinning it as that's three goblins, not like one hobgoblin. Right. The alternative is um, adding minions, right? So breaking them, breaking enemies out into very small enemies that are just one hit and they're gone so you're not having to track the numbers for a bunch of uh of enemies mm -hmm. this is also a nice time to abstract combat uh where instead of having you know eight players eight enemies you know 16 things on the board you can just say okay you're kind of you're in charge maybe this is mass combat mm -hmm. or maybe you are off to the side of a large battle you have a small skirmish but you can affect the battle in other ways like maybe you cause an avalanche and that takes out an entire army mulan style right remember that action economy is much more important than the literal number of enemies so you can actually keep the number of enemies the same but give them additional actions and like a little more hp but like don't overdo it so they're not just a bag of hit points mm -hmm. and in D, D, you definitely want to avoid or in D, D, you definitely want to leverage uh monsters that have some ability to mitigate save or suck spells um if you have multiple spell casters in the party which is likely when it gets bigger um you get spells like hold person or banishment that can just completely end an encounter in one failed roll and when you have three people casting that waiting to see if the first one worked right they didn't okay well i'll try it right so uh, fifth edition has like legendary saves um and some immunities that can be useful for monster defenses that you might have to justify adding into a given monster but be careful not to add too many blanket immunities because then your uh characters are just going to feel like they can't do anything right um, and then as always, you know, we want to make sure that combat is always telling a story. So as you mentioned earlier, um, use al alternate combat objectives um, to keep players engaged with more than just swinging at the bag of hit points, but, you know, trying to solve some other problem with combat kind of in between. Yeah, these are going to end up being the most memorable combats. And, and actually, like with so many people running around, you can have eight characters mm, three four maximum five enemies doing a thing maybe a couple of minions uh, maybe like one is a big boss and then rather than scaling up that combat to make it more difficult you have uh, other obstacles or uh, goals for the additional uh, pcs to handle and you know things like environmental hazards are really great here um, rather than having an enemy that shows up and is like oh, i attack everybody all at once uh, it makes more sense in the fiction if, you know, the uh, entire room begins filling with water. Everyone is essentially attacked when the water goes. Right. Um, or, you know, uh, random fireballs are going off in different places. Four, four of you need to roll dexterity saving throws. Yeah, that's actually something that you kind of quickly learn when you make a combat grid large enough 
is that being far apart from your allies is effectively the same as being in a different combat. Um, if you can't easily interact, like, you know, if one group is on the east end of the room and one group is on the west end, and that happens to be 150 feet apart, you know, it's multiple rounds to move to interact with each other. So you're effectively fighting two separate combats uh, at opposite ends of the same room. Um, that can make it a little easier to manage uh, scale-wise for you. Yeah, and then you've got that uh, nice tension where characters can see what's happening to the other group, but they can't really do anything to affect it. Right. Um, or you you reward characters who do have like one-off abilities like Dimension Door, where it actually becomes useful in a combat. Right, or uh, like Tabaxi Sprinting. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Um, or, you know, you watch your sharpshooter uh, die on a ledge um, a thousand feet above your head, and there's just no way that you can reach him. That sounds like a Dark Sun problem. <laughs> it was. <laughs> Did I instigate that? <laughs> it, uh, Angelo instigated that because he decided that uh, he would send uh, an invisible assassin after our uh, sharpshooter. <laughs> <laughs> and then we realized we couldn't climb the thousand feet back up. <laughs> All right. So we have both run larger games as we are sort of in a larger game group. You got any last tips, Ishan? How do you run games like this? Uh, I drink less when I'm running for a bunch of people. Yeah. Yeah, you got you to really focus. And I don't tell people not to because part, part of the fun of getting together with a bunch of people is often, you know, having a drink. Uh, but I perhaps am less liberal with my pours. I do recall when we went away to Philadelphia for Thrillicon, uh, we were trying to, play it packs unplugged but that ended up being a bust but we had right. a, uh, we had a house together and everyone own, was there our own convention in a house next to a convention that's right <laughs> uh i think we felt like we hit the tipping point where there were eight players in a gm and we were like okay this is a lot we cannot stay on task yeah yeah uh too much alcohol i actually i tried to use that to my advantage that's that's my big tip is don't be as aggressive in policing the side conversations because those distractions buy you time to adjust plans mid-session. Uh, and I feel like I've got to do a lot more improv and a lot more adjusting in a, in a larger game group. So I, I use those side conversations to do that work. I think it's also a good opportunity to do bookkeeping because it's one of those things where everyone is doing the same thing at the same time. So, you know, session zero is great. We're all building a character. We can have cross-talk conversation, and that's what we're here to do. We have a break in a session. We do all that downtime activity um, where we are helping each other out. We're deciding what items we're going to buy, or or you're running a, a specific session. You know, oh, I know I'm going to have a bunch of people, right? Um, you're running the, like, fellowship of the Council of Elrond session where everyone actually is literally sitting around a table and arguing with each other, figuring out what to do. All right, do you hear that, Ishan? Uh, yes, and it's a stupid idea. We should just call the Eagles. Well, we're not going to solve that one overnight, so let's move on to the Character Creation Forge. Before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous, that's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan, at Evil Sends Carne, that's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show, at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, at TotalPartyThrill. So today in the Character Creation Forge, we are building 
Dance with the Devil. So, Ishan, what is Dance with the Devil? It is very literal. <laughs> it is uh, someone who has made uh, an alliance with a fiend who uses those abilities to dance their way through combat gracefully, oh. effortlessly. Okay, okay. So what's the build? It is a very literal Swords Bard 6, Pact of the Blade, Fiend Warlock 14. All right, so I don't know that we've used Swords Bard before, uh, College of Swords from Xanathar's Guide, but that gets us Expertise, which of course is performance for dance, uh, Jack of All Trades, which gets half our proficiency bonus whenever we aren't adding our proficiency, third level spells uh we get the blade flourish ability which grants extra damage and and an additional effect it's it's like a baby um battle master right Mm -hmm. yeah exactly Uh, and then at level six we get extra attack which means that as a warlock we don't have to waste an invocation on thirsting blade yeah (laughs) which is quite the price so speaking of invocations the important ones are improved pack weapon and eldritch smite uh, you'll get two, and then eventually, kind of as a capstone, three Warlock spell slots per rest, which basically will eventually mean three Eldritch Smites per short rest. You'll eventually get up to six-level spells, but you'll also get super useful uh, spells for melee, such as Hold Monster and Dance Macabre. I like to think of Hold Monster as, please stop dancing. You're <laughs> terrible at it. And dance macabre as <laughs> you are dancing so terribly that it hurts. <laughs> you, you're dead and you're no, no longer dancing. <laughs> what happened? Dance again. <laughs> uh, from fiend lock, you'll get uh, some temp HP and a kill, even if you're not doing that kill with your weapon. Dark one's own luck for a nice little reroll ability. Fiendish resilience uh, that you can swap out different elemental resistances. You'll also get Hurl Through Hell, which is one of my favorite abilities. It's it's kind of like a supercharged hellish rebuke. Yeah, I like that, you know, it's basically your capstone, right? It's level 14 Warlock, and then you are saying, um, I'm a good dancer, but you should see my patron. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ishan, so who is your Dance with the Devil? I think my Dance with the Devil began as a dancer. Um, uh her bardishness is um, her devotion to performance on the stage. Uh, began as a uh, traveling performer, maybe as, as part of a circus, um, some sort of troupe, and wanted to get so good at it that she attracted the notice of a fiend, who, of course, offered her the ability to become so much better at it than she had ever dreamed. And she jumped at it. Um, she jumped at it and now is able to use that power not only to enthrall people with her performance, but also stab them in the heart if they deserve it. Okay, okay, okay. What about your Dance with the Devil? So I'll take the opposite side of that. I okay. think my Dance with the Devil is uh, a hitman for a literal fiend. Like, just in the employ of a fiend. That's, uh, that's leveraging that fealty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, you may be aware that many professional athletes 
actually take dance? No, I'm not aware of anything okay. with professional athletes. Okay. Well, many professional athletes take uh, dance and disciplines like yoga to improve their strength and flexibility and balance, coordination, those types of things. So dance is sort of uh, a natural athletic adjacent art form. Um, and so as a hitman, you know, as somebody who has the responsibility for besting someone in combat, because after all, what are sports if not just simulations of combat? Um, it became uh, pertinent for her to study dance, to become a better weapon for her patron. And as a result of that pursuit, continue to grow, continue to invest in the art of dance, and now views it as sort of a joint job and a passion. Uh, the fact that she's been able to merge dance into her duty to uh, kill things for a fiend is just uh, icing on the cake. She's merged dance with murder. Yeah, murderous yeah, dance. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, it's a job, but if you love your job... You'd never work a day in your life, <laughs> yeah. All right. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is to become one of our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So visit patreon.com slash totalpartythrill to get access to extra content and TBT merchandise. And it is also helpful if you're willing to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Uh, we will take your review and read it on the air. And we have a five-star review today. This is Love These Guys, Five Stars, by C. Beck. This podcast is, bar none, my number one weekly podcast. As soon as a new episode drops, it shoots to the top of my listen list, even interrupting an episode I'm currently listening to. That's how awesome this podcast is. It doesn't matter if you play D&D, which I don't, Rogue Trader, Genesis, or any other RPG, these guys are full of insightful info relevant to your table. Give them a listen. You can thank me later. Um, and that is from Christopher, formerly of the Sharkbone podcast and now of the uh, new Genesis podcast, Excess Advantage. I'm very happy to see uh, new podcasts focused on uh, essentially new game systems. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's an important part of keeping a games ecosystem fresh. And I am also very happy to see uh, that Christopher likes us probably more than most people who actually know me do. Although maybe that's why they don't that like. Might be why he likes you. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. he, he never, he's never had the burden of meeting you. <laughs> Soon. <laughs> All right. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We'll we'll be talking about well, we'll be arguing about alignment again, and this time we're talking about chaotic neutral. Oh, Batman's alignment. Yeah, exactly. And in the character creation forge, we're building the trickster. Well, that's it for episode 137 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening.